Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trial Love. It's a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw, people we met at the Trilon Cinema or through it in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org where you can get tickets to showings like the ones we're about to talk about. My name is Jason Daphnis. I help make this show and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison. That is my name. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry Mackin. You can find me on Twitter at Chitake Harry. And my name is Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. And we are completely over the moon to be welcomed by a very special guest whose name you probably read in the show notes by now. But uh, I'm very pleased to introduce Dan Halstead. You are a head programmer at Portland's Holiday, excuse me, Hollywood Theater, Holiday Theater, film archivist, uh, exploitation enthusiast, kung fu fanatic, bosom buddy to Quentin Tarantino. Um, am I wrapping it all up there, uh, Dan? How would you describe yourself? Sure. <laughs> I think that was pretty good. Thanks. I think you summed it up. I appreciate those things. Yeah, uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm a huge fan of the trial on. I love the trial on. I've been there a few times. I think it's some of the best film programming in the entire country. Wow. I was going to ask your opinion and what your connection is to the trial on later, but I'm just going to scratch that up for my document right now. Cause I don't think you could give a better answer than the, than the one you just gave. Um, so, uh, as you may or may not know, uh, coming up, if you're listening to this at release, uh, Dan has several prints that are going to be playing at the trial on as part of the grindhouse spectacular. Uh, no, is it exploit exploitation extravaganza or the grindhouse, Spe- grindhouse spectacular? I'm forgetting the name of the actual series that it's programmed under. You know, John gave it his own name and I can't remember what I'm bringing a 35 millimeter print of seven grandmasters, mm-hmm. which is going to be movies. amazing. Oh man. It's I can't incredible. wait. Only known 35 millimeter print of that movie. Um, and then I put together a big trailer show, but I can't remember if they're calling it Grindhouse Trailer Spectacular or if they give it a different name. I'm not I, sure. Yeah, I have, I Grindhouse Trailer Spectacular operating under the umbrella theme of an exploitation extravaganza. Uh, they're just too good with the branding. Sounds extremely you know? exciting. I, they I, are, I sort of lost track of it, but I'm not, I'm too ashamed to not take it out of this episode. We're going to leave it where it is. Um, but yeah, let's start there. Uh, just with the most, I guess, upcoming pressing thing, the pluggables. Tell us about bringing Seven Grandmasters to uh, the Trilon, the only known print, maybe? Only known print. I've been doing this a long time, and I've never been able to find another print of that movie and never heard of anyone having one. Um, so I'm a huge fan of kung fu movies. And when I first started showing movies to audiences, those are the movies I wanted to show more than anything. And I quickly found that 35 millimeter prints of those movies didn't really exist and nobody seemed to care. I would talk to film archives and most film collectors and nobody cared that Kung Fu cinema didn't exist on celluloid. So I just set out myself to try to save as many of those movies as I could. And I've had a lot of, I don't know if it's necessarily luck because so much of my own work and blood, sweat and tears went into it. Mm -hmm. But I've been able to save hundreds of those movies on 35 millimeter, um, including seven grandmasters, which that one came out of a huge collection that I found in an abandoned Chinese theater in Vancouver, BC, 
where I found over 8,000 pounds of film that was all under the stage in the theater. Mm -hmm. I've seen pictures of that uh, theater, too, and it's really, I think in your blog you said it was like a kung fu training sequence of your own, but it was a pretty sketchy place, right? It was like abandoned and sort of like in a sketchy part of town, and they were all just sitting there? Yeah, so it was a theater that closed in 1985, and I had just done a bunch of detective work, and it was my theory that the film was still there. And so I found it, that was 2009, it's been a little while, um, but it had been over 25 years that the film had just been sitting there. And uh, I talked to the owner in Hong Kong, and they had sent me a key, and I went in, they didn't know if anything was there, but I went inside and pulled the panel off the stage, and all the film, over a thousand reels of film, was under the stage. Including some, like, masterpieces, right? Wasn't uh, 36 Chamber of Shaolin down there? 36 Chamber of Shaolin, Five Element Ninjas, Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, um, so so many of the greatest kung fu movies ever made. Seven Grandmasters, Fatal Flying Guillotine, so many. Like, the list just goes on and on. And so many of them were in great condition. You know, they vary, right? Some of them are faded or a little mm-hmm. ripped up, but most of them were in great shape. Um, but, yeah, that theater also is on Hastings Street. I don't know if you guys have been to Vancouver. Not yet. Vancouver's a nice city, but they've consolidated everything to one area. Hastings Street, I saw a show on the Discovery Channel that showed the theater, and it said that three-block area of Hastings Street has the highest concentrated use of heroin in North America. Um, so it was people shooting up the entire time. When I finally brought the film out to load it up on a giant semi-truck, I used a pallet jack and I had to have a broom to sweep the needles out of the way. Each time we brought out a pallet full of prints to put them on the truck because it would take about 15 minutes to get it on the truck. Wow. So, uh, we, we evocative. Were, yeah, I was about to say, we will dig into <laughs> why the hell you keep doing this um, later on in the podcast. <laughs> but uh, but to focus in on Seven Grandmasters, one of them that it was, uh, I would call it miraculously found. I mean, given the circumstances against which you found them and sort of the just go find what you can nature of it, you know, blood, sweat and tears of it. Um, tell us what, you know, makes Seven Grandmasters itself stand out in the canon. Why should people care that it's being shown anywhere, uh, let alone at the Trilon? It's... I would probably put it in the top five um, kung fu movies of all time. It's directed by Joseph Kuo, who's really underrated. Um, He's one of the best martial arts directors. He made movies independently in Hong Kong, and he would produce and direct. He started his own distribution company. He did everything himself. Um, So it's a lower budget movie. It's not like a Shaw Brothers movie with a, you know, studio backing mm-hmm. or anything it's an independent production um but the fight choreography is so great it has everything in it you want out of an old school kung fu movie it's filled with fight scenes great training sequences um multiple villains with maniacal laughter and <laughs> has it's got it all it's it's a total huge huge crowd pleaser and it has this really great sergio leone-esque sequence in it that's always my favorite part to watch hmm. with an audience. Now, uh, we were listening to some previously recorded materials, podcasts, and listening to, you know, excuse me, reading articles and stuff, uh, interviews with you from before. And you had mentioned that, um, or sorry, the interview I had mentioned at the time that there was a certain, I mean, this was 10 years ago, but a certain uh, air about Kung Fu and exploitation film where it was like, how seriously can you take it? How the sort of inverse relationship between the mainstream and uh, and the independent cinema has changed over the years. 
Um, is this one of those movies that if somebody goes in jaded, assuming that they kind of know what they're getting, is it going to change their mind or is it just going to make them realize what's there is actually good? Um, I show these movies enough that they're go- it's going to blow their minds. The okay. thing I always hear from people who don't know what they're walking into, I'll hear from them after, like if they aren't into Kung Fu movies at all and, you know, this is all new to them. After the movie, they'll say, that was actually a good movie. And I'm like, what do you mean? Actual? Of course it's a good movie. Actually, what does that mean? I don't like that. But anyway, that's, you know, it's still a positive response, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So I think anybody who even, if you've never, it's actually a great place to start. If you're not into martial arts films, like what a perfect film to pull you into the genre. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping so. Uh, we caught a few of the, um, 36 cinema screenings, including the one with Riza. I believe it was Shaolin versus Wu-Tang that we tuned into during the pandemic. Uh, one of them that yep. you helped moderate and host. Um, yeah. And uh, and it was sort of my introduction to the genre. I knew about it from a distance. I had seen some of these things referenced. Of course, I knew that Wu-Tang was heavily inspired. A lot of 90s rap was inspired, but uh, had not really attached like my reaction to that thing to anything other than posters and memes and stuff so it's been uh, an eye-opening experience and i look forward to seven grandmasters being another one of those um nice. the uh, attached to this of course is the uh excuse me the grindhouse trailer spectacular is and i'm going to describe it as the trilons website describes it. i don't know if john wrote this or not but it says it is a peek into the strange low-budget world of weird voiceovers bizarre one-liners and oddball gimmicks that promoters used to sell movies in the oversaturated markets of the 1970s and 1980s one is that an accurate description to you dan would you agree with that based on the collection that you've amassed it's perfect it's i wrote a description and john made it much better okay (laughs) (laughs) those are his words (laughs) well done well done yeah he's in a pot um i think um i love 70s and 80s exploitation trailers which most of that show is going to be 70s trailers it's like accidental art i think there were so many exploitation movies being made during that time and they were all getting wilder and wilder. I mean, it was a time where like the late sixties happened, right? Like all of a sudden the code fell movies had a rating system. All of a sudden you could have violence and all these sex and all these things in movies that you couldn't have before. At the same time you had, America changing, right? The civil rights movement happened and the sexual revolution and people were doing a lot of drugs and all those things happened at the same time and influenced movies and Hollywood movies got pretty wild for Mm -hmm. a little while, right? But then the exploitation movies were the independent film. So they were making the movies that Hollywood wouldn't make. So they had to get even crazier, (laughs) right? And then the only promotion they have, they don't have a marketing budget that Hollywood studios have. They have one and a half minutes, two minutes in a trailer to make you think that this is just the most incredible movie that you're ever going to see in your entire life. Mm-hmm. Whether or not that was actually true didn't matter, right? <laughs> like some of the trailers I'm bringing are for really great movies. Some of them are for terrible movies. And honestly, you probably can't really tell by watching the trailer about which way <laughs> that's going to go. But they're incredibly entertaining because of that. They had to really top each other, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what makes them so fun. And there's interesting aspects to them, right? Like some of the Kung Fu trailers were really marketed for black audiences, you know? Like weird things like that happened. And all these little subgenres that came out of exploitation at the time 
that I really tried to, I'm showing like some of the craziest stuff in my collection. Yeah. We got a couple of questions around that, but I want to lead yeah. with how did, how did they even come together? How did, uh, I mean, are these, are these all collected from, you know, Vancouver, like just caches hidden around the world that you've collected or, or do these come from separate spots? It varies, yeah, from different places around the world. Some of them eBay finds, mm-hmm. some of them just from other collectors, like buying and trading film over the years. Um, you know, I've been collecting film for about 20 years. Um, so various places. And I bought quite a few from, if you know, Something Weird video. When Something Weird sold off a bunch of their film, I bought a bunch of trailers from them and I got a bunch of great stuff. But hmm. film used to change hands a lot more than it does now. Like Mm. now it's kind of all in the hoarder's hands. Mm. So it's harder to find great stuff, but I was able to buy film at a great time when there was a lot of selling and trading going on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What made that change? Um, Like why, why was film more accessible before? Digital cinema changed it all. I think there were so many people who were film collectors back in the days of when all theaters showed film which ended in maybe around 2012, 2013. And there were so many people that would just work as a projectionist or work at a theater and they would buy a a print of something, watch it at night with their friends, right? You buy Evil Dead 2 and then you'd sell it or trade it for something else. And so once digital took over, all those people stopped being involved in film collecting. And so just the hoarders were left that would buy stuff, which is unfortunate, Mm -hmm. you know, but I'd like to share my film or loan it out and, yeah, as I mean, possible. as evidenced by this uh, Trilon programming schedule we've got on February 3rd through the 5th, check out Trilon.org. I'm just going to do like NPR like mid show uh, plugs, if that's OK. <laughs> um, I do want to know. So we're not familiar with any of the trailers that are going to be played. Obviously, we haven't seen them. I believe you're leaving them a surprise up to the audience uh, until then. And I'm assuming they're one to two minutes each for about 70 minutes. So you're in for a ride. But I want to know what I mean, anybody listening to this has probably seen one or two trailers that they would call wild sort of like dubbed and weird stuff from the 60s and 70s what in your mind what sort of like i'm assuming of the hundreds of different trailers you've probably found over the years on film what put these ones in a certain tier of yeah i got to show those together what what sort of makes it cross the mark when you're watching a trailer and you decide this one has to get programmed versus this one can stay in its canister a little longer um it's i'm well i'm showing trailers all the time i always put them on but whenever i show exploitation movies or even classic kung fu films or anything you know from the 70s really and so these are the ones that get the biggest audience reaction Mm. you know like there has been sometimes where i bought something i'm like i think it's going to get a big crowd reaction and it doesn't but this is really the stuff that you know got the audience cheering and going crazy or jaws dropping there's definitely going to be some offensive material i'll make sure i tell the crowd (laughs) that's part of the experience i think i always think of this as like it's a sociological study as much as it is a cinematic study and it's interesting to see what was happening the 1970s was another world from the one we live in right now yeah yeah (laughs) I, I love that metric of uh, how loud were people when they saw this trailer? Does this get, you know, on the programming schedule? Yes, it's going on there. The Trilon gets it this time. Uh, <laughs> exactly. I guess if, if you make it out, uh, we'll probably be hooting and hollering in the back just to make sure that it's a good response. You plan to come back at some point, show these again. Um, uh, this isn't really related to the programming for the Trilon, but Dan, earlier on, you said you would put seven grandmasters in the top five. I have an inkling what the other four might be, but I really <laughs> wanted to hear what you thought they were. Wow. Um, I mean, it probably changes. Yeah. 
regularly. I mean, eight diagram pole fighter. Hell yes. <laughs> probably my Good favorite. Um, Master of the Flying Guillotine. I'd put on that list. Five Element Ninjas. Was that four, including seven Grandmasters? Um, God, how do you narrow it down? Yeah. Um, maybe Snake in the Eagle Shadow. Jackie oh, my Chan. God. Hell yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did you bring yeah. that one to the Trilon at one point? You know what? I can't remember. I might, I, maybe I maybe they played it, but I wasn't yeah, there. Yeah, I think oh, okay. it's what happened. I, I yeah. think that's right. Harry, you no, had yeah, two because years, me and, maybe me and Cody went to it on thirty five, and I was guessing that was yours. I mean, I think I think I've seen, if not all of the movies that you just mentioned at the Trilon, then almost. I don't think I've seen Five Elements Ninja at uh, the Trilon, but the rest of them, um, and uh, similar to Jason, uh, seeing 36 uh, Chamber on 35, which I believe was your print as well at the Trilon, that was the yeah. one for me that was like, oh, I have to watch all of these movies immediately. <laughs> yeah, that movie, I, which I don't even think I said that in the top five, that should obviously be in the top five. <laughs> yeah, that movie is the other great like introductory movie. If there's somebody who... They don't know if they'll be into a Kung Fu movie. If you're like, look, these movies are great. Like, that's the one to show them. You know, it's like showing them Seven Samurai yeah. or something. that just blows people away. Mm. Uh, the Trilon is definitely the place to see those things. We've always enjoyed the ability to go there and see stuff we would have never seen elsewhere, maybe through motivation or just opportunity. And when we do get to see it, like we got to see Mad Max Fury Road on 35. Like, where the hell else in Minneapolis do you do Where the hell else in the Midwest do you do that? Um, we're preparing to see Looper in the same and seeing some Bergman and just like classic, classic stuff. I don't need to sell you on the uh, like virtues of the Trilon. I'm assuming, Dan, we hear a lot about you from John. Uh, we know that you've been a frequent collaborator. You've even been a few times. Tell us a little bit about just tie it to the local audience um, about your relationship with the Trilon, you know, your connection there and sort of how you interact. Um, I met John, the programmer at a conference maybe six or seven years ago. Um, and I'd been having a bad time at the conference. I'd been around the wrong people and nobody was talking about movies and it was all about the business and people are using words like content and, you know, things like that to kind of make my stomach turn. <laughs> I think we've and, heard that story from John on the other side. Like, I think he said the same exact thing where he was like, yeah, we, I was talking to some assholes about content. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I was really in a bad place, and I was hating being there. And I met John, and, like, right away I just, like, grabbed him and was like, we're sticking together for the rest of this thing. Like, you can't leave my sight. Um, and so we became good friends right away and, um, yeah, and he, he has an incredible taste in movies and we text all the time whenever we discover something, you know, and share what we found and I follow his programming. It's incredible. It really is. I mean, I like to think I do a pretty good job at the Hollywood, but you know, the Trilon and, you know, Tarantino at the new Beverly and Phil Blankenship at the new Beverly. Like, I think that's the best film programming in the country like those theaters and the music box is great too and there's a few other theaters but i think the, i think the trial on is some of the best in the country it's incredible we have to agree can, uh, I, can I ask yeah. i was gonna say as far as the portland hollywood theater i mean what is the mix for people who aren't aware what is the mix of like kind of older films kind of new films how do you how do you balance that and what does that look like at the theater <laughs> We have three screens. We have our main room is 400 seats and a giant 50 foot screen. And then we have two smaller theaters. So 
I do a different event every single night, at least one event, repertory film. And then the other two screens, usually the smaller ones are first run. So we're always showing first run as well. Um, but, you know, it's, I mean, kind of like with the trial. Well, the trial and you guys do multiple shows of the same movie. Ours is more like you get one shot to see it usually, oh, okay. unless it's something that's really packing the house. Um, but like tonight is Coal Miner's Daughter. Um, we just played Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla over the weekend and Mothra. And I can't, it's almost hard for me to even keep up because I'm always booking further out and then I forget what's even happening at the time. Um, but try to cover a wide variety, right? Classic cinema and more obscure stuff and lots of 70s and 80s films and, you know, wide variety of stuff. And we show film, 35 millimeter. We show 70 millimeter, which is always a huge draw. Digital, you know, VHS, do it all. Uh, Betamax? We could. We don't have a Betamax play. When we got a digital projector, which was like 10 years ago now, when we finally installed those, Mm -hmm. we had to make sure that we could play VHS. And I remember the tech that was installing the projector was just like, what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) Like, you guys aren't, this is digital. Like, it's going to look amazing. He was so, you know, this is DCP. This is going to look amazing. And I was like, we have to be able to play VHS. Like, you have to install whatever you have to install so we can do that. I'm sure Portland thanks you for it. Um, I, I, I guess that does call to mind. Uh, like we've talked about those not necessarily separate lives or pursuits as film archivist, collector, et cetera, and film programmer, somebody who's actually handling it and working with it rather than just preserving it. Uh, did one come before the other? Did you have these interests like align together? Um, did they become part of your professional pursuits at the same time? Tell, you know, walk us through those uh, two parts. Um, well, I've been a, projectionist my entire life since I was a teenager. Um, When I started out, got a job in a movie theater, started as a projectionist. And as soon as I was like, oh, there's a job where you watch movies and Mm -hmm. handle film and you don't have to talk to people. I was like, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. This is like what I'm going to do. But then I became more ambitious and then started putting on events started putting on film festivals and renting out theaters to do stuff. Um, And I was working at the Hollywood as the technical director, projectionist. And I was like, there needs to be, I felt like a lot of events that were happening, other film festivals weren't about the movies. They seemed to be more about selling merch or it was more about people getting together with some weird marketing ploy or something, but Mm -hmm. it just didn't seem to be about movies. And so I was like, that's what I'm going to do. Like, that's what I'm going to focus on. I started doing events and they, you know, they were successful and they did well. And then in 2012, no, 2011 is when I was already working at the Hollywood and there was a, it's a nonprofit. The board decided to make some big changes and they knew I wanted to open my own movie theater. And so they hired me as the head programmer um, to take over the theater and it, became hugely successful. The thing the board didn't tell me at the time is they were actually giving it six months and they were going to close the theater down. Whoa! I think they were more like, well, let's just let Dan do this thing until we close it. And people really responded to it and it took off and became huge. It's pretty incredible what it became. It's amazing. That's wild. You know, it's what people wanted. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it was, you know, people wanted the movie palace to be 
like the place where you go that's like the church of cinema, right? So I think it was just giving people what they wanted. Yeah. Uh, you talked a little bit in the other interviews we've heard about um, Portland's open-mindedness toward uh, film, toward generally, you know, culture and art. Uh, a lot of metropolitan areas, you could probably say that about, well, what do you think it is like, I mean, turning around from a six-month closure to now, go, you know, continuing on with programming of all kinds, current and repertory, that's a pretty wild cultural shift. Like, do you mind... I'm just having a hard time wrapping my mind, wrapping my head around like the concept of a whole city that's just, yeah, we're down for this. We'll show up. We'll be there. We'll always like support and uh, make sure that this can continue. What do you attribute that to? Portland really is a big movie watching town. Um, people always say it's because it rains here all the time. Yeah. That might be part of it, <laughs> honestly. Um, but I think there's more than that. I mean, Portland also like. As much as there's like a lot of things about the city I can't stand anymore, like all the cool things that cities are about, we still have. We still have cool movie theaters. We still have a video store, which we also, the Hollywood saved our big video store, Movie Madness, a few years ago. But we have record stores. We have bookstores. We have tons of great vintage stores. We have cool bars. Like, you know, I don't know. It's like I go to other cities. I'm like, oh, wow, that stuff's kind of gone. Mm-hmm. Here, but it's survived in Portland. It's more like on the fringe, but it's still there. How know. did you? How did you guys save Video Madness? Movie Madness. Movie it was, Madness. Um, excuse me. It was kind of well. My wife had worked at Movie Madness back in the nineties, long time ago, and then when I met her fourteen years ago, that was actually how I met her. I was like, "Oh yeah, you were the Movie Madness girl. I remember you." Um, and then she actually wanted to be a film archivist. That was always her dream. And then she was with me two months later after that, where I found all the film in that theater in Vancouver. Um, but anyway, but then through her, I became friends with the founder of movie madness. And then about five years ago, he decided that he was going to retire. And he came to us about if we wanted to buy it. And then we talked it over, like, are we going to buy a video store? And we decided, oh, bringing it under the Hollywood's nonprofit is the only way to really go. And that's really the only way to run a video store these days, especially with the pandemic. Like, you know, there was no way Movie Madness probably would have survived that. Mm -hmm. Um, But now, you know, it's an incredible place, you know, like 90,000 titles. And it's also a museum as well. There's like props and costumes from movies. Oh, you know, the, the ear from Blue Velvet is there. and Oh, my God. Wait, yeah, which has David Lynch's hair, like, around it. Um, <laughs> and William Holden's shotgun from The Wild Bunch. There's a bunch of cool stuff there. So if you're ever in Portland, check it out. It's it's amazing. Movie, and I live right by there, and now I get to rent movies free, you know. So I'm always telling John it's about nice some movie I discovered. And he's like, God damn it. We, he has to, like, buy him. Like, you guys need a, video, you need a trial-on video store. You guys need that. There you go. Yeah, they guys can. They put together the the cult film collective. I believe was trying to put together a uh, for Trilon Club members like a video repository, kind of a library, uh, just before until the like base gets built underneath of it. Um, I'm really glad to see that that enthusiasm is still there. That like those two separate worlds of film programming and film archivism and uh, and or archival, I guess, and uh, and preservation are like married in that. And it's like it's from the outside. It looks like that's. The, like the marriage of your two roles too. Do you ever think about the interplay of those two things? And like, 
uh, one question that we written, I, I should give total credit to Harry because it was his question about like, how in your view is programming part of film preservation itself, part of that overall, like more, clearly you enjoy both acts, but actually programming these movies, actually showing them, how do you feel that that like contributes to the preservation and uh, archivism of them? Well, to me, maybe you've heard me say this in other interviews. I, I wouldn't collect film if I wasn't showing it to audiences. Like to me, 35 millimeter, film that's the reason it exists like every other format is for personal consumption if you Mm. watch a dvd or a blu-ray or you're streaming or whatever but film is meant to be shown to an audience so to me that's the whole point of it existing and that's what i have to do with it if i have it so it makes you know i if i wasn't a programmer if i wasn't showing movies i don't think i ever would have sought out all those films or I would have done all that, you know, that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I, I wonder if that has to do with, um, cause it, it feels like alongside, um, maybe the fall of digital had something to do with this, but it feels like, um, film is kind of going the way of vinyl in that it's kind of having a resurgence where people like us get really excited about it. Whereas maybe, um, they didn't before. Um, and I wonder if, I wonder if like, if that's sort of emerging as a boutique market or something, um, hopefully, <laughs> Well, the weird thing about that is when digital took over, I thought, oh, people aren't going to care about film for a while. And then maybe it'll come back. And people cared right away. At least in Portland, like that happened instantly. Like we already could start promoting like on 35 millimeter. And people are like, oh, that's like, I mean, for film nerds, cinephiles get excited about it. But then also people would get interested like, oh, there's a difference? Like, what's that about? And then I think would notice that, oh, there is a difference and they'd be more interested in coming. I was surprised how fast that seemed to happen. And then, you know, we installed 70 millimeter as well. And I was interested, it was interesting to see how people were so excited to see that happen. It was really cool. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask about the, oh yeah, sorry. No, please. Uh, I was going to ask about the, the, 70 millimeter I th- that was in 2015 i think that you guys got that up and running um that seemed like kind of quite a process right i mean like having to like you don't it's not just like you go out to like the 70 millimeter you know guy and then you you purchase what you need right it sounded like you have to like supply a bunch of different um parts for that to like get it up and running and it was like this whole long process i guess could you kind of go into that a little bit yeah, we had the projectors because they run 35 millimeter and 70 millimeter, but the 70 millimeter parts were missing. They were been stolen out of the building or something Jeez. Um, years and years and years before I was there. Um, so it was a matter of bringing in a technician and making a list of everything we needed to make it happen and then going out and finding. And again, it was reaching into the world of film collectors and all the people that I already know and deal with and just tracking down all the parts piece by piece for the projectors. And we were able to do it, which was incredible that that happened. Um, and we're, we're doing a fundraiser now to buy a pair of backup projectors because I found a guy in L.A. who is um, he's in his 90s. He was Frank Sinatra's personal projectionist for 40 years and he had this warehouse full of equipment and I found out about him and I saw a picture of this warehouse and I was like, he has a pair of those Norelco projectors. <laughs> so we're 
doing a fundraiser right now to buy them because they're almost impossible to find. Wow. And then we have backups, right? Because that's the big fear all the time is like, what if something breaks? What are we going to do? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Was there your first showing on 70 millimeter to the public, not your tests, but was there still a fear? Was there like, oh shit, this could go wrong? (laughs) Or were you pretty confident about the pieces you put together and the sort of setup you had? I was definitely concerned. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we had done a lot of tests, but it was one of those things where a lot of things had gone wrong during our tests, right? Oh, no. So we didn't know what was going to happen. But yeah, we showed 2001 Space Odyssey, which is the perfect movie to you know kick off 70 millimeter. Yeah. And it was great. And then that was right before Tarantino's Hateful Eight came out. And then that was a whole huge pain because it was in the Ultra Panavision. The let's shoot it in an ultra wide format that nobody's used for 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> And we ran into so many technical problems trying to make that work. It was incredible. I had to go to a machine shop to have parts made so we could, you know, get the lens to work. It was insane. A lot of, so much work goes that Film is a pain in the ass. <laughs> I, people come up to me and they'll be like, I want to get into this. I want to start collecting film or whatever. And I'm like, no, you don't. You don't want to do this. Film is heavy and it smells and the projectors take a ton of work and everything is, you're always trying to overcome all these weird problems. Uh, I always say, if you, yeah, I'm sure I say this all the time, but I think you have to learn to hate film as much as you love it before you can truly appreciate it. Whoa. Because it really, <laughs> it's, it sucks. <laughs> but it's amazing, you know? Yeah. I'll never forget, uh, John told me about running 16 millimeter once, and he said that there's only one side of like the thing that you thread into the camera. So he's like, every single time I, I thread it, I'm thinking like, is this the last time anybody's ever going to see this? Cause I'm going to tear it or whatever. <laughs> Cause like there's no backup, right? So I, I always think about that now when I'm watching 35 is like, there's probably somebody back there who's like sweating, like thinking about like, am I going to screw this up? Is something going to go wrong? Exactly. And you know, I, I show even when you watch the trailer show and you're going to see every type of film damage possible is going to be on display that night right scratches and you know splices and so many splices so many different things and every one of those that's something that happened in the projection booth that night right it left its mark some projectionist had a bad time that night but like that's that's such an important like human part of the thing right is that like when you watch digital you can sort of like you get absorbed but like when you watch 35 it's like oh i'm like this is like a physical artifact Mm -hmm. that i'm like interacting with um yeah that's so cool this this was this was labor you know like it sounds like if you had advice for people who wanted to get into film it would be don't or (laughs) (laughs) i mean if you're going to show it to an audience, then yeah, go for it. But just know that it's going to be far more work than you think it's going to be. And it's going to take up a lot of room in your house and it's going to be a pain in the ass. Just know that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and you'll be like, oh, did I can understand how just hooking up a hard drive is how that happened in the industry. <laughs> uh, it. It makes me think of something you said. I don't remember the exact words, but in another interview, which of course, listener will be linked in the show notes, um, about how folks, how kids essentially were uh, watching. It was 2012, so it was some time ago. But how kids were watching film movies today, uh, and it's mostly devices. It's mostly distracted. It's a lot of it's at home, um, and there's a little bit of like old man yells at cloud to all of that. But like, I'm wondering how much that has 
has your opinion on that any of that changed? Are you seeing any trends among how like younger generations, I'm saying thinking like young twenties and younger are responding to film or responding to like public viewings of movies to who are responding to like going to the theater? What are you seeing in Portland and generally? Well, I'm definitely an even older man still yelling at the cloud <laughs> for sure. <laughs> that hasn't changed. Um, you know, as far as kids, you know, I will say I feel like after the pandemic, the audience has become younger. And I've noticed I've talked to a lot of other film programmers. I don't know if John has talked about it at the trail on, but that's there seemed to definitely be a shift where audiences became younger after the pandemic. It was it's very noticeable. Um, but as far as kids, I would say I I probably need to do more programming for kids. Mm. Somebody just recently was like, you know, you need to show more stuff on film that kids are going to come see so that they'll be interested in film in the future. And I was like, wow, that's a really good point. I really should focus more on that, at least occasionally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think I went off. Track no, no, I, it's, it's exactly what I was hoping for you to say, because I want to know now, like <laughs> top of your head, what do you know that exists on film that you could get a hold of? That's like for kids that you feel would draw a young crowd. Are there um, I just found out that there's I've shown some Miyazaki movies in the past and I showed them on digital and I just found out that there's 35 millimeter prints available of those. I don't know if any of those have played at the trial on, but I don't I, think so. Not yet. We have everyone Kiki's. here will be emailing John. Yeah, no, we we would have just sensed it in the ether that some Miyazaki <laughs> film. I, I, I've definitely looked up 35 millimeter prints of Miyazaki movies on eBay and stuff. And then, you know, uh, Dan, to your point, I was immediately like, oh, that, that costs like $10,000 or something. It's like, oh, I'm not, that's not me. I can't be that guy. <laughs> Yeah, those would be highly selectable <laughs> yes. if you found them. Yeah. Uh, then tell me about, like, are you seeing since that, you know, again, I'm just roughly saying about a decade ago, since the last time I saw any of you, you're commenting on this and stuff. Uh, has, have you found, like, a larger audience for your work specifically with the Hollywood, with bringing film across, you know, to places like the Trilon with, you know, exhibiting it elsewhere. Have you seen a, broad, a bigger audience? Have you seen that like in the mainstream, so to speak, growing in interest? Because I'm assuming that when you started, you would have called it niche and through efforts of your people like yourself, it's just grown into a whole thing. You've now got the, you know, in every metropolitan area, there's some kind of sect, some kind of nucleus of people who are interested in film. Have you seen that just become more populace have you seen that uh grow in interest over you know let's say the last decade and you know definitely how and and i think post pandemic again i don't so i guess people were just stuck at home watching the exact same thing or i don't know i don't watch again i have movie madness so i don't watch stuff on streaming i'm i'm the old man feeling <laughs> about it but um I think people got really burned out on that stuff they were watching. And now they just, I mean, business at the Hollywood is insane lately. Everything is selling out. Like you got to buy advanced tickets to everything because hmm. it seems like people just want to go watch movies. They're sick of watching stuff at home, you know, and so many people like, what do they even do? They watch it on like a tablet or their phone or whatever, like seeing it in a theater after you weren't able to do that for a while, you know, has a, big impact on people they're so excited to do it now so yeah i feel like almost everything it doesn't matter how obscure it is people are interested in like oh what's that about and seeing it on film is a very unique thing 
and they want to support it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, digital is great too, right? Like, you know, films get new restorations and they look amazing. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of my favorite movies of all time. And that's a movie that I would always be like, I'm only going to watch that on film or whatever. And then there was a restoration happened to that movie a few years ago. And I saw it and I was like, that's the best that movie has ever looked and sounded. And it had such a huge impact on the audience that I was like, you know, sometimes digital has its place. But I do think film is always better. I was going to ask in terms of like changing audience attitudes that you've said, because you, you one of the things you said at the beginning of the conversation was kind of how like hard and how kind of, I guess like a, a thankless job it was like working uh, in kind of the, the industry that you work um, specifically for like martial arts films and exploitation films, camp, things like that. And kind of how maybe the audience was kind of like generally apathetic and whatnot towards films like that, you know, years and years ago, have you noticed that change like recently or in recent years? Um, has it always been just like the same kind of group of sickos like us that, that <laughs> dig that stuff or has it, does it feel like it's gotten kind of a, a wider audience? Uh-huh. I think it's got a little bit of a wider audience in the last few years, for sure. Um, it always continually seems to grow, right? Like it's not just there. It does seem like the same core group of weirdos that would come out for obscure movies is still there. So like, wow, I've been seeing these guys for like 20 years. These same people, <laughs> are, which is great. Right. But then it, it had the audience has grown. Right. And, you know, and for Kung Fu movies, That's just something that seeing a Kung Fu movie with an audience is such an electric experience, right? Like, I don't know if there's any other genre that touches that. Mm -hmm. Um, So for younger people to come see something like that, where there's a big, you know, the audience is so into the movie and they're getting, you know, you feel that electricity while you're watching it. They just haven't experienced that before. And so they, you know, seem to get excited about it. Unless they've seen RRR, which I encourage everybody <laughs> to see film. in the theater. Mighty fun it's incredible. <laughs> which, like, you know, that movie, is, that is a heavy martial arts influence on that yep. movie. Hong Kong influence and spaghetti Western influence on that movie. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of it. Like, when I've watched that with younger people and they're just losing their goddamn minds watching that movie. I'm like, they have not seen anything like this. They've been watching stale, generic Marvel bullshit their entire lives that are just cookie cutter movies. And now they're seeing something that's truly mind blowing and incredible and they're not used to it Mm -hmm. and they don't even know how to respond. Right. They're just losing their minds. But Kung Fu movies have that. Right. Which is why, you know, what a big audience watching a Kung Fu movie. It's so exciting. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you got to drag people to get there. Right. To have them understand because there is that weird idea of like, oh, these are those are bad movies. Right. Yeah. Like those are lesser than, yeah. Which I always think is just kind of racist and annoying. You are right. Yeah. You are right about that much. Uh, it yes. it makes me think of how important like uh, word of mouth is. I don't remember how Harry uh, and and Cody started going to the Trilon, but once they were going, I started going just to spend time there and see old movies again. Like I grew up watching them with my mom. Treasure of the Sierra Madre was the first movie I ever saw at the Trilon, and since then it's just been all up and up you know, just incredible stuff that I've never heard of in most cases. Um, and it makes me think of like how outreach was very important in terms of like uh, uh, Harry and uh, other folks telling me, go check, you know, come check this out. Let's spend the evening watching this movie. And I would think 
typically watch movies either new in the theater or at home. You know, uh, I'll, I'll pirate something that can't be found anywhere. and I'll just watch something weird on my own. But this is, you know, this midway point of it's still community, but it's also built around something that nobody like is a master of. Nobody quite understands. It's not current, right? Um, I don't know if that's so much a question as amusing, but have you seen that? Like, what's been the most effective way to get people out? Is it just posting it and hoping it spreads around? Uh, is it like, you know, how do people actually find out what's going on in, in the Portland film scene? You know, we met with a marketing expert at one point, Uh-oh. some guy that works for like Nike and gigantic companies. And he's this marketing guru. You know, you go in his office and you take your shoes off and he has this, you know, peaceful music playing and all this stuff. But he had been coming to the theater a little bit. And then he met with us and he was like, that Kung Fu theater series, he's like, that has what everybody, every business wants. Because if you can, he's like, marketing shouldn't be that you're throwing it in everybody's face. It's like, really what companies, especially like Nike, want to do is more of a subliminal thing. And he's like, your Kung Fu series has it where people go, they feel like they discovered it, and it's cool, and then they bring their friends to it. Mm. And he's like, that's the greatest. And he's like, you already have it happening naturally. He's like, but that's something that large corporations try to create, which kind of creeped me out to think Mm. about them doing that. Um, So, yeah, that's the the word of mouth, right? If you are creating something cool that is honest and for the audience, which is what I've always really tried to do. And I think John tries to do that too, right? He's dedicated to the movies and it's about the audience. And I think people really respond to that and they will bring their friends. And so I think that's so much better than whatever social media stuff you can try to do, which honestly, it just doesn't seem to have like that much of an impact. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, send out an email to everybody on your email list but as far as getting new people, like they have to come experience it. And if you have people excited about it enough to like bring their friends, like you're set if you can make that happen. Right. But I think How just being you... honest about it. Yeah. Sorry to, sorry to cut you off. I was going to ask like, how do you, in, in regard to like film programming and specifically showing maybe like older films, how do you, and I'm just thinking about this because there's a, there's a theater that's no longer in Minneapolis, Uptown Theater, where we'd, we'd go to as well that would do uh, like midnight movies. A lot of good movies, but they were pretty solidly midnight movies, right? They were showing Total Recall, maybe Alien, Akira, stuff like that. Um, great films, but like films that I think most people going to see those had probably seen once or twice, right? They're going to a midnight showing of it. Um, how do you kind of feels like, you know, showing something totally fresh, new for most of the people who are going there, showing something like, you know, RoboCop. Um, how do you kind of balance that? Like, do you try to, you know, maybe get one or two of those to kind of get people in the door sort of a situation? Or what's your kind of thought process there? I think it's really important to mix it up, right? Like, you don't want to just show those movies, but at the same time, you don't just want to show more obscure stuff. Like, I think it's important to sprinkle that stuff in there um, and have, like, as wide of a variety as possible. I think that's extremely important. Um, it's obviously hard to build up the audience for the more obscure movie. So, you know, it works to show, like, the RoboCop 
And then people are like, oh, this theater is pretty awesome. Like, what else is going on here? And maybe they'll come back to check out the obscurity, I guess, if that makes sense. But I think it's all about mixing it up, right? You should do it all, which I think the Trilon does, Hollywood does. Yeah, this is a, a question I always love to ask John because he's always given really good answers. But uh, what's something that you always wanted to show, but you feel like you haven't or you haven't yet? Uh, just because like maybe it's too obscure or maybe it's like not quite right or whatever. I think with me, it's more about I have the dream film prints that I haven't been able to find. This right? is another question. So this is perfect. <laughs> yeah, um, that's what instantly comes to mind because my Kung Fu series is all on film, right? And I've never cheated on that. And the audience is really into that. Um, but there's prints that I've just searched for and searched for. And it's funny. I just had Tarantino in town in November and I asked him, we went out for drinks and I was like, what's the one film print that you've never been able to find? And he said, Sonny Chiba's Street Fighter was his number one. And my number one is Sister Street Fighter. So if anybody has that double feature, 35 millimeter, I'm looking. We're both looking. Command <laughs> a pretty penny it. for the double feature. That's right. But I have a you know a list of Kung Fu prints that I've been trying to find. Um, another movie made by Joseph Kuo, Born Invincible, which is such a great, it's classic, but just never been able to find anything. And it gets scarier all the time because maybe it's not out there at this point, right? But you never know. I've found other large collections of film that I haven't been able to get my hands on yet. So you never know. I'm working on a big collection right now that hopefully if it comes through, we'll have to see what's there. Oh, how much of that can you share? Um, It's a large collection in Taiwan. And it's a former projectionist, but you know, yeah, anything with film, it's always complicated. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't speak English. He doesn't use a computer. So I need to find multiple people who can help out with trying to make this happen. So we'll see. I mean, you know, I work on this stuff all the time, right? And sometimes it turns into a crazy adventure and it's works out. And other times it just, you know, slips away and becomes nothing. So Mm -hmm. who knows? So what'll happen? (laughs) Wow, I can't believe Sai Ming Leong doesn't use a computer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, you know, we're talking about like how much of a toil it can be and how like much of a uh, passion project it is, no matter how big it gets. Uh, it leaves me wondering what, you know, when does that hit, excuse me, hit? We, we talked with John a lot about how um, the film community is very much a community. Uh, it's, you know, people like yourself who sort of command a certain region. You sort of know what's in the area and you're always looking you're keeping an eye out. You're, you know, communicating with people overseas, even to get the hold of the right prints at the right time, and really like lock them down and preserve as much as you can and show it. Um, but does it ever hit you like the impact of like what you've been doing for the last twenty five years? Does it like when? If so, if you ever take a moment to think, like, yeah, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, I've, and I've really like made a gigantic impact on the world of film, at least domestically. Uh, and if so, when does that when is that most obvious? Is it like during screenings of like just showing people something obscure they've never seen before. Is it stuff like the programming with Rizzo that we were talking about earlier, where it's like, I'm at a scale I never thought I'd achieve. Does that feeling hit and when? Um, Yeah. I mean, I think all of that has happened, right? I think mainly it's just people talking to me. Like, even if it's not at the theater, I mean, honestly, you know, at the theater, I love talking to people about movies, but 
I'm usually hiding from people because I really, you know, get it a lot. Um, but, you know, even if I'm whenever I'm out, you know, I, I would say it happens to me almost every single day that people come up to me and they're like, oh, wow, Hollywood or Kung Fu Theater, or whatever, Grindhouse screenings or 70 millimeter, whatever. And they're excited about it. And so many people have told me that they live here because the Hollywood and movie madness are here or they even moved here because of that. Whoa. So, you know, I hear it all the time. Um, so, yeah. And then also like RZA, like the pandemic was surreal for everybody, but it was, I felt like it was even more so for me because on top of everything that was happening, you know, I had all these former guests reach out to me, you know, RZA, I had met RZA and I'd showed him my film archive and showed him that I have the only known 35 millimeter print of Shaolin versus Wu-Tang. And then I think that kind of got his wheels spinning. And then he reached out at the beginning of the pandemic and was like, hey, I have this idea for doing this online platform, 36 Cinema, and we'll do live commentary to Kung Fu movies. And that was how all that, you know, and so just, you know, doing that with him, that was so surreal. You know, That's, I can't I can't imagine getting a phone call from Riza. I think I would lose my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, and he's he's great. You know, none of it's none of it that you see is an act. That's how he really is. He speaks philosophically all the time. And he's just so ex- we do so many tech tests and he would just get caught up watching the movie. We'd just be watching Shaolin versus Wu-Tang. And I'm like, <laughs> is Riza still there? Is he still on the line? Oh, he got caught up watching the movie. So like it's he's such a movie nerd. It's great. You love he's to such hear an it. awesome guy. Um, yeah, the pandemic was weird for everybody. It reminds me that uh, I'm not plugging here. I'm just like as an example of how weird it was and how surreal the opportunities we got were. Um, we talked about Ganja and Hess on this podcast. And then shortly thereafter, uh, I think just by mention, Sam Wayman, the composer and uh, Nina Simone's uh, brother got out reached out to us on twitter and we were like you want to be on our show and he was like yeah why not and we talked to him for like an hour about music and black art and you know exploitation in the 70s and horror it was a bizarre experience so like if it's even a fraction of like how it feels to be in front of somebody knowing that the reason that you're in front of that person is because of something you made happen like you rescued a bunch of uh film from a crack den in vancouver or whatever you know i just i marvel at what that must feel like you know knowing that you're the the person who does that. i mean of course with groups of people and all the aid in the world but like without you it doesn't happen right sure yeah that's incredible about ganja and hess that's amazing that happened i'll we have were, to listen to that we were as floored he's, as, he's yeah. so cool oh my god sam Wayne's yeah, like the really coolest cool. guy who ever lived too oh, so I yeah bet. that was awesome <laughs> um and it, it's it's like uh it's it's one of those things that's like really heartening because i remember we were doing the podcast during the pandemic um and i was like so worried obviously i was extremely worried about the trilon and just about everything i was like are we gonna lose the trilon or like is this and it kind of seems like the opposite thing happened like now that we've we're not you know the pandemic's not over we'll never really be over but like um it seems like i don't know it, it feels like something happened during the pandemic where like you said um people were maybe tired of being at home they wanted to be out in, in the theaters but like it feels like as a as like a uh an event repertory cinemas really like had a moment post pandemic um and i wonder if it's like events like that 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 sort of made it happen it's really really exciting to see Absolutely. I think it was a mix of people got sick of watching the same stuff they were watching at home, but also they realized how 
much they appreciate a place or made them appreciate a place like that. Like maybe you got used to it, right? Going to watch a movie, Mm -hmm. whatever. But then when you couldn't do that for like two years, like people were really like, oh my God, a place like the Trilon is so important, you know, more than just seeing the movies, it's community. And, you know, that communal experience of watching a movie is such a powerful thing, right? That movie theaters bring. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we should shout out too, like the trial on and, and a lot of uh, cinemas like it did a really great job during the pandemic of sort of like keeping the community alive mm-hmm. too. So that was definitely a big aspect of it. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, we, we were at a uh, secret screening last night at the trial on part of the trial on club, a uh, certain paid membership, uh, Cody and I, and I usually, those are fairly well attended 90 seats in the theater. Uh, and usually maybe 40, 50 people are there. Um, last night for a movie called The Last and First Man from a couple of years ago by Johan Johansson, a pretty obscure art film, I guess, but um, almost full, almost like totally filled wow. up. It was the most full that I've ever seen. And that was a program that they launched, I think, just after the like the height of the pandemic. I'm forgetting exactly when they launched that, but it's just been really heartening to see, not as if I'm like, I'm an OG or anything. I just started going in 2019 and they've been going since 2008, 2010, but it's just really really nice to see to Harry's point that that just keeps like they've found ways to keep it alive. The community has really responded. It's not just the same old farts week to week. It's new folk. It's new blood. It's, it makes you really hopeful for the, you know, future of it for the present and future of it. Um, and I mean, we're still in a pandemic. Do not, <laughs> do not mistake me, dear listener. Sure. We're still there. But, uh, my point is we're sort of, it's really nice to be back together watching movies like that watching uh, strange offbeat programming like again this is how i'm going to tie it back the grindhouse spectacular trailer uh set and seven grandmasters playing at the trial on february 5th excuse me third through fifth fellas i'll open up the floor one last time to any lingering questions you got any lines of questioning uh that you want to know from dan before we uh, let us all go this is maybe a greedy question and you alluded to it a little bit i given that we haven't even watched seven grandmasters yet and i'm so excited for it and everything but what's uh what's next do you have any big plans big programming plans things that you really want to do that you maybe want to like give us a little sneak preview of that at the hollywood is that what you mean In, yeah or yeah talking? i mean anywhere i mean i if it comes to the trial on obviously i wouldn't complain <laughs> but if there's something really good maybe i'll have to come out to the hollywood oh wow well you have to come do you guys have, is anybody show 70 millimeter there? Is there a theater? Yeah, there's one place, the Heights does it. Uh, that's how I saw, um, we also saw uh, 2001. And I think um, Barry Lyndon was maybe on 70 millimeter that I saw there, which was incredible. Uh, but other than that, that's it. And I think they only have the one projection and it doesn't happen very often. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, if you've never seen 2001 Space Odyssey on 70 millimeter, it's we unbelievable. have our own- yeah, we we paid to have a brand new print made that that, that then we can show whenever we want. Whoa. <clears throat> and I always end up watching it with the crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, God, you know, I feel like what do I? I feel like for flying to town, I don't know. Would you come watch Truck Turner on thirty five millimeter? Is that absolutely? Exciting? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I love Truck Turner. Oh, it's Truck best. Turner in in February. Amazing. Um, you know, and we, we bring special guests to town, but I don't. I had a John Woo booked before the pandemic started. We're going to show the killer with John Woo in attendance. And then we had it set, sold out, and then pandemic, so it Uh. fell apart. But I have been in touch, and he still wants to do it, but no date has been set yet. So eventually that will 
that will be happening. I so would make the trip for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And we had, on track or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we had, um, we had Pam Greer a few years ago and she's awesome. She's just the nicest, I'll most bet. gracious, incredible person. And she and my wife really hit it off. And during the pandemic, they were texting each other a lot. Oh my God. So <laughs> I know, which is incredible. Um, and so got to bring Pam back at some point. So if, if that, I'm not saying things that are definitely happening, yeah, yeah. but I'm sure she'd be open to it. What a surreal so, sentence. My, my wife is friends with yeah. Pam Greer. Oh, you know what? <laughs> my wife, my wife's showing a movie at the Tryline. I've, I've, I'm probably supposed to plug that too. While we're there, she's hosting a screening of, is it gold diggers of 1933? Is that right? I, There's yeah. a pre-code. Yep. Yeah, my wife's an expert on pre-code cinema, and so John had asked if she would show something while I was there showing kung fu movies and trailers, so she's hosting a screening of that. Wonderful. If you needed there another you reason to go to the Trilon, there you have it. Uh, you'll find links to, in the show notes to everything we've talked about here. Um, speaking of which, uh, Dan, make sure that I get eyes on a link for your uh, funding for um, uh, backup projectors. We do want to make sure that the word gets out about that as much as we can. Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much, listeners, for being part of this. Uh, it's always wonderful to get to do this. Thank you, Dan, for joining us, making time uh, out of your schedule. Can't wait to see what you've got up your sleeve for this uh, for this film showing uh, coming up at the Trilon, 3rd through 5th of February 2023. Find links in the show notes or go to trilon.org for tickets. Uh, we'll be there, and you should be too. I'll be hooting and hollering uh, so that you have a good reason to come back, Dan. It sounds like that's the thing that makes the most impression on you is hearing people react. So I'm going to react my ass off. Uh, thank you so much for, for being on. Um, where do you want people to find you? I'll link, leave links to the website for the theater and everything, but are you on things? Should we point people toward things for your personal enrichment? I, I'm not a big social media fan myself, um, but I would say just check out the Hollywood's website. And if you're interested in the the uh, commentaries that Riza and I did are still available on 36 Cinema. Um, so I'd say check that out. They're amazing, and, by the way. I, it's Thank so you, much yes. fun to watch. Oh my god, I couldn't believe like Riz is so he's like an incredible commentator. I mean, you were as well, but like both of you, it just like it was such a joy to like listen to that. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, that was, he was like, "Do you want to do this?" And I was like, "Of course, I want to do that." And then yeah. doing a commentary <laughs> with him is like, "Oh, talk about the movie," and then. Like, oh, yeah, so tell me about when you and Old Dirty Bastard would go watch this movie <laughs> back in 1983. What was that like? You know, like, incredible, incredible. So, anyway, yeah, 36cinema.com. Those are still there. Wonderful. Check it out, listener, uh, and check out the Trilon at trilon.org. My name is Jason Daphnis. This podcast is Trilove. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. Uh, I'll plug the email to trilovepodcast at gmail.com. Get in touch with us. The only way we get to do cool things like this is when people tell us about them. So tell us about them. My name is Jason Daphnis. I help make this show. You can find me on Twitter and Nintendo Fist. Thank you so much, Dan, for being here. Thank you so much yeah. for having me. This is great. Thanks so much for your time, Dan. I don't know if we were going down the line. I'm Cody Narvison. See y'all at an exploitation extravaganza. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Yeah, I'm Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at Chitaki Harry. Thanks, Dan. Uh, my name is Aaron. Uh, catch me out uh, in Portland whenever John Woo comes through. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RB Please. <laughs>